listening to the New Century Multiverse, The Princess Thieves. Chapter 6. The Fox and Bear Gwendolyn wandered the misty courtyard in the pre-dawn chill, feeling the wet ground under her toes. Shivering in her nightdress, she approached the immense gates, knowing that, as usual, they would be locked and guarded. But there was no sign of another soul. The red-coated guards, both dwarf and human, were gone, their boxes empty, their posts abandoned. Gwendolyn glanced behind her, wishing for Viola, knowing the harsh words her companion would say, and how soon she would be ushered back inside. Not a sound. She reached the gates, painted black with golden prongs, adorned with her family crest, and bordered by an ornately carved, tall, white square pillars. Experimentally, knowing the familiar locked resistance, Gwendolyn pushed. And to her astonishment, the gates swung open. Electricity danced up her spine. London lay beyond that cold whiteness. Her heart thundered in her chest. The mist began to part, and she paced forward eagerly, only to come up against a force that terrified her to her very core. It could neither be seen nor smelled, but its icy touch made her gasp and recoil, clutching her fingers. (sighs) Nothing could be glimpsed beyond this wall. And she knew now that she had been here many times. Her head throbbed and she turned, walking as smartly as she could back towards the front doors of Buckingham Palace. She felt the wall behind her and her breathing quickened as she imagined it might be following. Those doors would be unlocked. Surely she could get back inside any second now. And if they were locked... (sighs) Gwendolyn awoke with a scream and lay panting on her bed, its sheets soaked in sweat, her head and heart both pounding in tandem. (sighs) Viola was up and on the bed in moments. It's all right. It's all right. You're here. I'll protect you. Viola... I... I need to fight. I need to. I'll... I'll go and see if one of the guards is up to it. I know Simon's already gone home. No. I need a real fight. I need the truth. It, it's nearly ten. The fighting rings will all be closing soon. The one beneath the fox and bear goes on until one in the morning. We have talked about this a hundred times, Gwen. 
Don't make me say yes. I could lose my job. Or far worse. You'd be in terrible danger. Please, stay. Gwendolyn reached out her trembling hands in the dark and found those of her friend. Viola, look at me. I need this. Oh, I'm going to get charged with treason. Darling Viola, I will destroy any man who dares say you have anything but my best interests at heart. Well, you may have to. Can we at least make this quick? Wear the good disguises. Get out, get back. Nobody shall know. You'll have to be handy with the spells. All right. You have three minutes to get dressed. (sighs) How do I let myself get talked into these things? In three minutes and thirty seconds, the pair were stealing through the darkened palace, evading detection. In the library, Gwen found the familiar catch under the fire, and the bookcase swung open. Lighting their lamp, they stole inside. They passed behind walls and in between rooms, stealthily navigating their shadow halls. There was nowhere else in the palace with this smell. Dust and damp pervaded the air, infusing it with an odour partway between an ancient well and ruined church, as they picked carefully across mahogany boards which creaked with endurance. They were aware that what had been built sixty years ago, unattended as it was, would not last forever. Eventually, no matter how well preserved the tunnels had been, they would begin to succumb to the expansion and contraction of heat, the pervasive moisture, and the erratically moving weight of the two explorers. On this night, both of them stepped carefully over the hole which Gwen had created with her foot last spring. Back then, once she had extracted her knee and calmed down, they had peered through the splintered gap, the lamplight casting faint traces of gold down into a passage which neither of them recognised and which they had never found the way into. The winding steps at the end of every corridor had more of a permanence about them, and handrails, which suggested these might have been part of the original design of this place, walled off and repurposed. They were too grand to be for servants alone, but uncarpeted and rough. The princess's favourite point was coming up ahead of them now, the tall archway in the western wall, decorated in black tiles, was briefly illuminated, bricked up solidly. As a child, Gwen had been determined to break through and see what was on the other side. Viola had deterred her and shot down every wild speculation but still had not been able to come up with sufficient evidence as to which room or place it led to. No amount of hunting round the palace side could turn up its counterpart, so it lay in Gwendolyn's mind, ever beckoning further investigation, ever offering new possibilities. She brushed a cracked tile with her fingers as they passed. The pathway sloped down as they descended into the catacombs below. It was chillier here, and the smell of earth seeped through the stone foundations. Here and there the water had accumulated and risen to the level where in certain tunnels it drew up to Gwen's waist and Viola's shoulders. There was a swift return to bed and two baths on the night they had discovered that. But the way out was mercifully still dry and they were grateful for their dark, warm coats 
headscarves and tricorn hats. Eventually they emerged blinking into the night from the unfolding statue of King George IV in Green Park, far north enough to avoid being spotted by the guards. London really did lie before them now. Clenching and unclenching her gloved fists, Gwendolyn strode forth with Viola keeping a watchful eye upon her. This was not the first time Gwendolyn had ventured out into London. Point of fact, it was her fourth, 1879. The first time she had been so giddy that she contented herself with wandering the moonlit streets for three hours, Viola fending off those who approached with confusion and darkness spells. She had ended up in Covent Garden, sat on a bench, staring up at the lit windows and the stars, an enormous grin plastered across her face, breathing in the intermingled scents that lingered from the previous day roasting goose, the rain on the pavement, a man being copiously sick in a nearby alley. Some of these odours would certainly have been repellent to you or I, but to Gwendolyn, that sharp stench meant new, it meant different, it meant danger, and that was what she wanted. It was two in the morning before Viola managed to get the princess back to her bedroom, but the way the girl kept sighing told her tiny guardian that this was, of course, not going to be the only time. 1880. The second occasion, Gwendolyn had made a beeline for a particularly seedy looking establishment that they had passed before, the Mad Bull Inn. After an intense and hushed argument outside, Viola paid for their entry and they descended into the bowels of an underground fighting ring. That night had been purely spectating, watching as a tall, skinny man went up against a string of opponents, none of whom seemed able to shift him from his winning streak. Gwen watched the tall man, whose name was Colin, studying his approach to combat carefully. She worked out that it wasn't how hard he hit, but his fine control when blocking. Because of his awkward frame, his opponent was always slightly off balance, and their fists and feet tended to come into contact with his bony arms and knees, which were always in the way. The human hand has 27 bones, Duart have only 23, and Arca have 25, but there are still a lot, all held together with muscle, cartilage, and connective tissue, making for one of the most delicate and complex instruments at the disposal of our bodies. Just one little bone out of line, or fractured, or broken, and it doesn't work properly. Much like the ear, only people don't tend to punch with their ears. The human elbow, forearm, and knee have a lot fewer, less complex bones, and the human skull is developed as armour for the brain with some extremely hard protective plates. It is thus, when the complex collides violently with the simple, that things go wrong for the complex. All Colin had to do was ensure that when a beefy chap made a punch to his ribs, that those delicate finger bones connected at an awkward angle with an elbow, and in that one blow, Beefy would find himself subsequently unable to safely punch with that hand. Stinging pain would attack his central nervous system, making it harder to judge his next move. A lunging kick, and suddenly his leg was going numb as Colin moved to the side. Half of Colin's opponents actually gave up after a few minutes in the ring with him. It hurt too much, and there didn't seem to be many options. What proved his undoing was Galash. An archer of exactly the same height, but extremely thick build. 
Galash was an enforcer for a low-level gang boss, and he didn't mess around. The Arca didn't bother punching, he just edged Colin into a corner and enfolded him in a powerful bear hug. An awkward knee to the knackers didn't phase Galash, he was wearing an iron codpiece, and now suddenly Colin's knee had encountered something even less complex. Gwen watched and smiled. This was something she could do. 1881. The third time Gwendolyn was out of the palace, she somehow convinced Viola to let her fight. Her face and body obscured behind scarves, a hat, and a long overcoat, she entered the ring trembling, the cacophony of shouts eclipsing the sound of the out-of-tune piano playing in the corner of the establishment. The floor was disgusting, caked in dried blood and mucus. The walls around her were dull white brick, and the lamplight flickered cold and green. What the hell was she doing here? Not only was she out of her depth, she could no longer even see her depth. Gwen's first opponent was a cruel, hard-looking man with grey hair, who immediately swung at her gut. As she turned her body away from this, his other fist cracked against her jaw. Suddenly, they were very close, engaged in a frantic pushing away of one another's faces. She was hit several more times and found herself on the floor being kicked. All of a sudden, Grey Man swung his foot too far up and found himself off balance. From the floor, Gwen could see Viola whispering in the crowd, her fingers weaving away. A combination of indignant fury and intense relief flooded Gwen, and she was up in a flash, ramming her knees sharply against the man's back, grabbing his head and tumbling down to crush him with her full weight. His body spasmed, and he struggled a moment before going limp. This was different. He had not pulled his punches, and now she hurt badly all over. Breathing was painful, and she suspected a rib had cracked. Viola, with her spell, had helped Gwen get over the initial shock and fear of being hit, and she had won. The difference between this and her confrontations with the palace guards was that she knew that Grey Man did not care at all about hurting her. All he cared about was winning. He brought a simple, cold truth to the ring with him. The punches and kicks had felt horrible, but they were real. In effect, it didn't matter that she had won. The important thing was that she had fought. Drunk on this revelation, she went up against an immensely fat, bald man named Gareth, who incidentally was a big follower of the theatre, and on the side of his shipyard job had spent many nights in minor roles on Drury Lane. Gareth was on top form tonight, having just killed it as Aslak and Pierre Gint, so Gwen got slapped hard to the head and went down like a sack of potatoes in six seconds. <coughs> as they left the establishment, she could not stop shaking and laughing. The next day, they had applied liberal makeup to cover the bruising. Later that morning, she had taken a controlled tumble from her pony, landing painfully but at least being able to explain the damage to her body, allowing her time to heal without arousing suspicion. 1883. Tonight... She wanted to fight once more. Once again, winning was not important. Fear was coursing through her, and she wished to meet it head on, to take the punch and just keep going. Under the fox and bear, Gwen fought three opponents in a row. The first was a muscular, red-haired, well-kept Duard who reminded her of Lord Aaron. He had hit hard, but she countered with an unexpected ferocity. 
In the end, she was chasing him round the ring, kicking at him frantically, ending it with a sudden change of direction that had him run back into her, only to be slammed to the deck, which was noticeably less disgusting than the floor of the mad bull and was at least wooden boards rather than concrete. Gwen was already flying on her first victory. She glanced up at Viola suspiciously. Viola shrugged, with a genuine glimmer of pride in her eyes. Gwen squared herself for her second opponent. It was Colin. She watched him carefully as they moved around one another in the ring. She did not make the mistake of attacking, and clearly Colin was wary of another bear hug. In the end, the fight happened slowly and awkwardly, with the two of them grappling. Colin seemed to know the best places to put his arms to give her less purchase. Gwen recalled reading about how a Burmese python overcame its prey, the example of food given on this occasion being a piglet. Now they were on the floor with his bony coils around her, she struggled hard against this unfavourable comparison. Things started to go blurry as she felt herself drifting. She hoisted her legs up into the air, crunching her body double and trying to set him off balance. Inadvertently, Colin's head became trapped between her immense muscular thighs and as she felt him panic, she squeezed and rolled over. Colin's shinbone came up and clocked her in the side of the face, but she grabbed it and locked her arm around, holding up her other to guard against his remaining flailing limbs. Eventually, he went limp and she stood, once again, victorious. Her third opponent was an enormous green archa. She was now exhausted and by all rights should have quit while she was ahead. Instead, once again, she kept pushing, testing her limits, which were swiftly found. You see, back at the palace, whenever she fought, she would hit her natural limit and then stop. She would get tired or bored or go off to do something else. Ergo, her strength improved at a steady rate, as did her skill, but her stamina and ability to pace herself was absolutely rubbish. Now here, she was testing those limits and finding them entirely unequal to the task. The Arca charged ferociously, roaring at her, and she tripped over her own feet, trying to find a stable position. Oberon, for naturally it was he, slammed his arm against her chest as he passed and she was over. The wind knocked out of her. <laughs> More alarmingly, her scarf had slipped and as she hastily pulled it back on, almost nobody in the room was looking directly at her, instead marvelling at the Arca who thrust his fists in the air and roared. A second or so after Gwen was unmasked, the lights dimmed, or at least that was what appeared to happen, and by the time everything was clear, the scarf was back up. But Robin had seen her face. This is why, when she exited the ring, greeted a female Duarte with pink hair, and left the cellar laughing, Robin collared Oberon, who was collecting his winnings. Well done, old boy. Oh, he was tired. I just went in with the sudden shock tactic. This is why we should be doing that more often. She. What? She was tired. Didn't you get that figure of hers? Did you see her face? You thought that was a woman? Is it only me who has an eye for these things? Come on! What are we doing? Well, that wasn't just any woman. He pulled himself up close to Oberon's ear. It was Princess Gwendolyn. You're out of your mind! You think I'd mistake a face like that? 
I've looked upon her a hundred times at the National Portrait Gallery. I know it doesn't make sense, but somehow, somehow, she's out and about in London, and she likes a fight. So, no, oh no. I can't believe you're about to say what I'm pretty sure you're about to say. I'm definitely about to say it. Oh, I can't believe it. Royal kidnap. She's right there for the taking. Have you any idea how much gold we could get? Scarlet and the Hoods would be at a tactical advantage for once. By now, the pair were outside, pacing along the street several hundred yards behind Gwendolyn and Viola as they headed back to the statue of George IV in Green Park. Okay, let's do it. Really? Yes quick before it becomes sane and change my mind. Alright, I'll pull the old dashing hold up and tell them both to stay quiet and come with us. You hold her while we walk. We'll need some swiftly acquired transportation and watch out for that little Duart toddling along beside her. She looks like trouble. Meanwhile, not far ahead, Gwendolyn and Viola were clashing once more. Did you see that? Did you see that? I beat Colin. I beat the gangly one. And that Aka nearly tore your face off and wore it like a bonnet. <sighs> your amazing mind. I didn't like seeing him touch you. Oh, but the ginger dwarf was okay. Colin was okay when his slender, sinewy arms were around me? No. Then why all this special mistrust of the Aka? He seemed like a ferocious warrior to me. Someone to be feared and respected, but not hated. They're squatters and thieves. I don't like saying it, but it's the truth. Have you ever met any? I've met plenty of them. No, I mean actually talk to one. They have nothing to say. The savage ones are the worst. Mindless brutes. I only ask because there's one following us right now. I know. It's the one you fought. Do you think he saw my face? I was quick with the darkness on the room, but there were a lot of eyes and I don't know if it had the full effect on everyone. Princess. Princess? Look at me. If someone did see you, then this game is up. I mean it. We've had an exciting time, but there are too many things that can go wrong when you fight. I've been a fool letting you do it. Terrible at my job, and, and I deserve to be relieved of my post, and, and no longer your friend. Nonsense. Dear sweet Viola, you've performed admirably. I could have cast all sorts of spells on you. Addled your brain, brought you home as gentle as a lamb. Get those spells ready. Yes, I have a dreadful feeling you're about to be kidnapped. Do exactly as I say, and if it comes to a fight, you take on the dwarf. have been listening to The Princess Thieves, written, edited, and produced by Alex Shaw, with a full cast. Viola, performed by Loretta Saylor. Princess Gwendolyn, performed by Theo Lee. Narrator One, performed by Maureen Foley. 
Robin, performed by Alex Shaw. Narrator 3, performed by Spencer Lieb. Mortimer, performed by Sharon Shaw. Oberon, performed by Matt Wardle. The Princess Thieves theme was Arrival by I. Sazanov of Shockwave Sound. The Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy, originally composed by Pyotr Ilyich Tchaikovsky, reorchestrated here by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com, who also composed and performed Willow and the Light, Celtic Impulse, Perspectives, Arcade Ched, and Angevin. Many soundscapes provided by Tabletop Audio. The New Century Multiverse is funded by Patreon, and our $15 sponsors get credit every episode, so thank you to Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Datchler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salgero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Duran Barnett, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clayson, Joe G, Josh Waster, Kat Esman, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Marty Huey, Matthew A. Siebert, Matthew Webb, Michael Hasco, Robbie Crow, Sarah Montgomery, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. And for those of you who weren't aware yet, your voices counted in the end. At the Ursa Major Awards for 2015, Tiger's Eye reached the final nominations for Best Drama Series and Best Published Illustration, and won Best Anthropomorphic Novel of the Year. If this book helps a few more people to understand and live with depression, which is one of the core subtexts, whether it be theirs or someone close to them, then you guys will have helped others by bringing this to more people's attention.